Trust in the science that's out there. Trust in the training plan. Trust in your body's response. Hello. Welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. What fun it is to have Riley, Dr. Riley Nichols and Rebecca McConville or Becca with us today. And they are talking about sports, psychology of sports, of injury and eating disorders, performance, motivation, dedication, resilience and sport. And I am the fish out of water here because I am the non-athlete. So you can laugh at my questions as we go along. But honestly learning so much from Becca and from Riley and you'll hear at the end Becca is my business partner so we a year ago purchased this house converting to commercial space in downtown Lee Summit so we are working together and it's really a lot of fun and Dr. Nichols if you in the show notes check out the web page of mindbodyendurance.com there are so many clinicians that are part of his team so learning from you know the seasonings that they provided externships internships ron thompson and roberta sherman and their book olympic committee and ncaa also i love riley's last part buckle up hang in there we don't know what we don't know keep a sense of humor and maintain the joy so tomorrow this is this episode's dropping on May 13th so May 14th Becca and Riley will be at Arizona State and there is a link in the show notes to that but the CPSDA part portion is sold out and then June 10th they have a virtual program for you with four continuing education units so check them out welcome Rebecca McConville and Riley Nichols hello thanks for having us Hello, we are so excited to learn and chat with y'all today, but to get things going, Riley, we've got some icebreakers for you. And we don't have Rebecca because we're going to attach you or connect you. We're going to attach you. (laughs) We're going to connect you to her episode because she's answered these questions. Oh. So breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. Oh, that was a quick, quick answer. Definitely breakfast. Do you have a breakfast food of choice? Four eggs, a uh, half or full avocado, a couple pieces of bacon, two pieces of toast, a banana, and some cherry tomatoes every most every morning. That sounds great. Wow. Yes, they love breakfast. And then mountains or beach? Good question. I would say mountains. Yes. Okay. Great. You had to think about that one a little bit more, but then once you said it, you were decisive. Yes. I love both very much. My growing up went to the mountains for a week every summer with my aunt's cousins and everyone too. So I, I, that, that tip, uh, tip the scales. Yes. All right. Audiobook or paper book, Riley. 
Ooh, these days, just for practicality sake, I would say audiobook. Um, <laughs> yes, it's a little bit more convenient throwing their air buds and, and listen away. So I, I do like the old school paper book, uh, just the feel of it. But if there's any type of reading going on, I guess uh, auditorily would be, yes, preferred and just practical. Yeah. I love audiobooks too. It's just quicker. I mean, I can do it anywhere as I'm doing. As Rebecca, we were talking about this morning, as you're doing your laundry or doing running errands or whatever, you can listen to audiobooks or podcasts. So our listeners are a variety of folks, and some of them are still in school. Others are quite seasoned. So Riley, going to ask you if you can share with us a story, either something funny or scary or anxiety producing about an exam that you had to take, whether it's a board exam or licensure exam or. Oh, well, yeah, it's probably the EPPP. And for those psychologists, I guess, listening or out there know all about the EPPP. I'm not a great uh, at all uh, standardized test taker. It's kind of like the culmination of, you know, grad school training studies and you just got to jump through the hoops. And this was kind of like the final hurdle bought some exam books and did the best that I could, but uh, I don't think anyone feels totally prepared and took it and just some oddball questions that you feel like have no relevance whatsoever to what you're ever going to (laughs) do. Did the best you could to kind of stab in the dark and then really anxious and got the result. They printed it out and I went out to my car and I kind of just like sat there. And this probably tells you like season of life at that time. Well, it hasn't really changed, but it was just kind of in full motion. And then I opened it up, I saw a score and I had no idea what it even meant or like what was passing. So I was like Googling it on my phone. I was like, did I, I don't know if I passed because it didn't, it didn't say that. <laughs> and, and then I, I kid you not by, by one, uh, by a millimeter um, skin of my teeth, I, yeah. I, I squeaked by. So, um, yeah. so I'll yeah. always write in the world. It's so funny because I think Becca, your story was, uh-huh. and I had to run out there like having a panic attack because, and the lady's like, "I'm not supposed to tell you, but yes, this means you pass." And I was like, "Oh, guys, like crying and like, yeah. <laughs> yes." And I, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the by the skin of your teeth or not, because some of those questions are things that you know are even just practice questions; they don't count or. Yes an area of specialty, you can actually know the correct answer and you have to try to guess what they want you to say. Sure. All right. Well, how did you get into into eating disorders work? How did you get into therapy? Did you know that's what you wanted to do? Kind of, how did you get there? Yeah. Good question. So I grew up playing sports my whole life. I just really had an affinity for athletics and played baseball. My passion and had aspirations to play in college. That was kind of the plan. And life had other other plans. A couple of weeks before going to college, I had surgery on my left shoulder as a pitcher and then went to college in a sling and tried to rehab it throughout my entire freshman year and played a little bit that year and a little bit my sophomore year, but just never could come back from it. And so kind of the psychology of injury and transitioning out of sport prematurely from kind of my own timeline in a manner that was not my choice really was impactful for me in many ways, just from an identity standpoint. And I thought, wow, I'd love to be able to try to kind of provide some support to athletes in this area at some point. And so I mean, into sports psychology that resonated with me, this, the mental aspect of sport and playing and competing and masters in sports psychology, I ate it up and loved it. 
but I realized that I, I could address kind of the performance issues, but the clinical issues I needed training in, or, or else I could, had, would have to refer out and kind of, I uh, kind of, I conceptually, I view kind of more clinical issues and sport performance issues as very intertwined. And so I sought more clinical training, uh, went to Fordham and that was a long haul, but they have uh, like four years, essentially three years of externships, which is like 20 to 30 hours a week of placement. And then a full year of internship. And my second year worked in college counseling. The first year I had a peer above me who worked in an outpatient eating disorder uh, facility in New York city in Columbus circle, uh, the Institute of contemporary psychotherapy center for the study of anorexia and bulimia. And I, 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 I did it for a couple of reasons. One, it sounded fascinating to me. But then secondly, it was literally about 200 yards from the Lincoln center campus from Fordham. And so it was very efficient <laughs> and but as I got immersed in it, I think the population itself of eating stores just really spoke to me. It's just so sad, I think, for individuals struggling in this manner. But the multifaceted nature of this illness with mood disturbances, trauma, family um, dynamics and issues were just so layered for me. And so that really resonated. Went on to get another year of um, kind of more treatment and addiction world and then back for another full year of eating disorders because I knew I wanted to specialize in that all throughout grad school at Fordham for six, seven years, I coached runners and triathletes in New York city. I've been a triathlon coach and running coach for about 20 years. And so I knew I wanted to work with athletes and kind of the intersection there performance clinically, and then eating stores kind of crossed. And then as I was finishing up my dissertation, the victory program was just kind of conceptually in its framework with Ron Thompson, Roberta Sherman, and the timing was perfect. And not by my doing, but just like happenstance and total luck. And so then I relocated to, to St. Louis here to, to oversee the victory program. So that's kind of what launched me into the. Yeah. The yeah. For people who don't know about the victory program, what is that? Yeah. So the victory program is the first intensive eating disorder treatment facility for athletes in the country and adolescent athletes and, and adult athletes. So high school, college elite uh, and professional and kind of provide specialized training for af or specialized treatment specifically for athletes in St. Louis, Missouri. And I was with uh, victory for, for eight years. And since then, there's been a couple other facilities have kind of branched off and have had similar, more specialized care. And currently I'm an advisor to ED cares athlete edge program in Denver, Colorado. So excited about that opportunity, but I'm just really thrilled in the field as a whole, there are kind of these specialized providers such as Becca and others who really have the training and sensitivity to working with, with athletes specifically. So. Sure. I mean, for the dietitian, the CSSD certified sports dietitian is a big deal. And so mm -hmm. that's really cool that Becca has that Becca, you have both the CSSD and the CEDS, the certified eating disorders specialist registered dietitian. Oh, yeah. It's definitely come a long way when you think about some of the early stories from, I call Ron Thompson or Roberta Sherman, like the godmother and godfather yeah. of eating and sport. I think they would be really proud. And I think we've only just begun. So it's exciting. Yeah. So Riley, when, what did you use to help train? I mean, there wasn't much there. You talked about Ron. I see. I've already forgotten the other person's name. Roberta. Roberta, Ron and Ron Roberta, because they were in the Olympic, didn't they write some things for eating disorders for the Olympic committee? Yes, they wrote some things for pretty much everything um, on mm -hmm. athletes and eating disorders over the years, because they were 
had an uh, outpatient practice in Bloomington, Indiana, worked with Indiana University athletes there for years and years, and then consulted with the, yeah, the International Olympic Committee and the NCAA and other organizations as well. So I had a, had a wonderful opportunity to really learn from them, just their, their wealth of knowledge and experience in the outpatient world. And then, and then inpatient or intensive treatments, is just a different beast in some regards, there's certainly some overlap there too. But so that was just a, a really rich experience, just from a training standpoint to be, to be in the intensive treatment world. I also had an outpatient practice too. So I, I could kind of experience kind of the both, both levels of care, all those levels of care too, which was nice. Just so for different. Me yeah. 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 So part of the seasonings was just being in the right place with people and following some of the research. Are there was there a book for sports psychologists and eating disorders that you could look towards or a good research facility? Or since since you started at a place that was one of the first in the country, maybe in the world, did you do research? So we did do research. The book that was out there, shockingly, is from Ron and Roberta, Athletes and Eating Disorders. And I think it was, <laughs> I think it was written in, I can't remember, it was either 2011, I, I can't remember, 12, something like that that, but they, they like, at that time, it was like the only book. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yes. Yeah, so the short answer is yes. In victory at the victory program, it did some research and collect data. We had a full-time data and outcome specialist who like crunched numbers and gave assessments to patients on admission and 30 days and then at discharge. So, so we did that for, for athletes too. And then we also looked at more strength and power data. A lot of athletes of course are very concerned about their performance and some, you know, coming into treatment really have worries and concerns about performance decrements and whatnot too, just to being in treatment, making changes uh, to their eating habits and potentially changes in weight, body fat. And so as providers, we all know, have known for a while that like the body is going to be strongest and most powerful and have uh, most sustained endurance, like when it, when it's nourished and in a state of energy balance. So we, we know that I think and for athletes, you can tell them that and it's great, but I, I think until they actually experience that themselves, there's, there's really understandably so maybe a lack of buy-in or understanding. And so we did kind of have some studies kind of demonstrating strength and power gains, just even in a short time during in, uh, residential treatment or intensive treatment um, that were made despite athletes like training a lot less or not at all initially eating differently and everything else. So the objective numbers are there to support what we know as providers as well. And Beth, if I could add to that, I think because there's been so much outdated literature, I think it was usually like if somebody was being treated for an eating disorder in sport, they were thought of leaving their sport. And now we finally have the data to say, not only can they return or stay in their sport, but they can actually perform better when they're well-nourished and healthy. So I think we're starting to see athletes come earlier for intervention. And we're trying to treat a lot of these clinicians, not, excuse me, we're not treating the clinicians. We're trying to educate the clinicians as to how to navigate this with them to get the help and let them believe that they can still thrive. So what would like a typical day for a patient at the Vickery program look like? I'm assuming it's a bit different than, you know, something like ERC. Sure. Yeah. Good question. And, and I, I know there's, there's a lot of similarities between like victory and then ED cares edge program too. It's kind of a, um, both are like a 
kind of think about it as like a track within kind of general programming. So you're in general programming and then there are specialized special groups for, for the athletes that they would be pulled from if they're in the athlete track and go to. So and those groups can be anything from, you know, body image, family dynamics, but in both of those, yes, there's, that's more kind of mainstream for eating disorder treatment. But I think with like for athletes, yes, there's body image concerns, but there's also like contextual body image in the context of sport or in your uniform socially too. So it's very contextual, which is a little bit nuanced for non-athletes. And then more of the family work is yes, family of origin, but athletes spend some oftentimes more time with their sport family than they do family of origin. So, so it's kind of weaving that in as, as well. And really talking about the dynamics there, sports psychology group, of course, talking about more psychological skills needed to enhance performance in sport. And I think that we try, I try to take like a strengths-based approach and really bring those strengths and those attributes psychologically as skills and really weave them into treatment as well. Motivation, dedication, resilience, commitment, right? Drive. Those things are totally needed in, in eating disorder treatment at any level that athletes really can find. So, so there, there are specialized kind of groups. Yes. There's like a um, kind of a fitness group that's supported in terms of integrating the movement and, and training at some point in treatment also, which is maybe a bit nuanced from maybe more traditional inshore treatment facilities. And then the sport family appropriately is integrated and involved in the care. So it's, it's kind of dependent on the athlete, informed consents, of course, and releases, but sometimes coaches too are really involved, especially on the tail end, just to kind of try to be aware and sensitive of an athlete's care so they can kind of, you know, be respond accordingly if or when the athlete rejoins. So it seems like getting back into physical activity is always like the daunting questions. Like, are they ready? Is this okay to do now? How do you, how do you decide? Are there boxes they have to check or what's that like? Good question. Uh, Becca, Becca, you please talk. I've blabbed enough. (laughs) No, I'm only going to say there's a lot of gray, but you know, having a lot of mutual clients with Riley, it's not the quantity, right? Because especially some of us have been former, if you told me three hours was too much, well, that was my first practice of the day. That wasn't the second or the third, but it gets down to the quality. And then what, what's the reasoning? Why, like, why are they doing that? And then being able when they're medically stable to integrate that into movement, because it's so critical. We can't, you know, only focus on one part of the eating disorder, then send them back to their school where they're maybe full on, you have to slowly integrate that and be walking beside them. And that's where it's so pivotal to have that sports psychology that gets the sport piece of it, the mindset, but also the therapy approach. Yeah, I I completely agree with Becca. And I think it's part, it's kind of an art and science, just like kind of setting goal weights, right? Um, I I think it's, there is an objective measure. So I think first and foremost, integrate training or movement, there's like a medical stability, which is utterly foundational. So individual needs to be medically stable or else it's like reckless and risky and dangerous and just doesn't make sense. But just because someone's medically stable does not mean inherently like green light. And I think that's where, you know, the more clinical appropriateness is needed. And that's some gray area that is really, there's a lot of facets to it too. So of course, you know, Becca can speak maybe nutritionally, but there's also like from a psychological standpoint, an ability to like regulate, manage emotions in other ways that don't involve exercise, right? Mm-hmm. Or ideally an ability to kind of derive value and self-worth in ways that don't involve workouts or, you know, expending energy. 
And then there's like a feel too. I think you're working with with individuals and there's like a perseverativeness on like, hey, can I work out? Can, can I be approved now? What about now? Now? You know, <laughs> yes. It's, um, it's just like, like clear as day. To, yeah. <laughs> it's, clear as, it's clear as day as a provider, like the brain still needs to heal. And so I think there's, there's that piece there too, uh, more to the clinical piece. And I don't know, Becca, you can speak to like more of the nutritional and whatnot too considerations. Right. Because then that part of that brain just gets activated and you can tell that they're not quite a hundred percent recovered. And I think that goes back to when their sole identity is being that athlete, if they can't engage in that, then they feel like they don't have a lot of self-worth. And that's where I think in the meantime, you know, the therapy component really comes to the surface. Like, well, if I'm not doing my training or moving, I'm not doing anything. Well, you've got some other areas that you can, why don't you go to a movie with a friend? Like they look at you like you're insane. <laughs> That's sitting. What do you mean? <laughs> yes. Right. Can they go sit? That's just so you, yeah, you talked about strength and power, performance, body image, all of those things are part of that psychology. And I'm, I'm the only one on this call who's not an athlete. So I'm going to come across as really ignorant with this question. So we were talking about heart rate and VO2 max or someone who may be on a medication that decreases their heart rate, like a beta blocker. And what does that do psychologically to an athlete with an eating disorder? Or do you know? Well, I, are you talking about, we kind of were going over a case consultation, Beth? Mm -hmm. I think she was talking about when athletes are so number driven and we're told like, Oh, VO two max. Okay. Then I better get hundred percent on that. Then if my heart rate needs to be at this max heart rate, I better hit that. And so some of these wearables and numbers that we talk about, it might give them another thing to gravitate towards as a check the box. But like you said, it's a science. So there's a lot more that goes to it. And we always go back to, okay, that's fine and dandy, but what is your body telling you? Yeah. Because who cares if your heart rate is 130, but you feel like you're pushing a 10, you need to back off and rest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, that, that's something as a coach too. I, I mean, just the athletes that I coach non-eating disorder that I, I gravitate more towards like RPE kind of by feel rate of perceived exertion. And then the pace and the watts pushing on the bike is very, very secondary, right? I mean, I think athletes kind of latch onto that, but I do think though, that sometimes unintentionally, if you give a hard and fast pace, that's not appropriate, right? Um, they can be overextending and that's like not the goal for like periodized training and like workouts that are really scientifically based. And so if you have, you, and I also think it, a lot, it does not permit an athlete to develop trust with their body. It kind of they're like, there's not attunement there. So I do think we're, we're kind of constantly from a, from a nutritional hunger cues, fullness, emotional, we're trying to foster attunement and trust with your body. And I think depending on, I think it's really impactful how coaches deliver workouts and how they're given. And I think if it unintentionally, sometimes they're done. So in a way where it perpetuates an athlete to like maybe dis or dismiss their body's cues, because I want to hit this pace, which I think there's a time and a place for that. But I, I also think that, yeah, like Becca said, kind of the RPE is, is key. It, and we often joke, we don't know too many coaches that go too easy on their athletes. Right. <laughs> so it's not that like is... they're not going to push them. Yeah. So. <laughs> you talked about sport family and it's interesting because, you know, I'm, if you're working with a, an adolescent with an eating disorder, you're working with their family too. And it can be really hard 
not only to work with the athlete's mind frame, but then the parent mind frame. And so we're replacing that with coach and these athletes are wanting to really no pain, no gain. That's what the slogan was back in the, I don't know, eighties or nineties. Is that, I, hopefully that's not, I don't know. Maybe that's something that's current too. Abby's shaking her head. Yeah. I don't think it went out of style, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So rate of perceived exertion. And I think that, you know, if someone's on a beta blocker, then they need to take care of their heart Mm -hmm. and they need to eat well, but that can be really hard if they're numbers driven and need to, I didn't know if that meant that they would be burning less calories or that they would be, I don't know why that number would be so important. Yeah. And I, and I think there's like, I mean, I think when you're not, I'm not a beta blocker expert, but, but I do <laughs> think that, that I think if someone is on that type of medication and it does alter heart rate, right. Then I think accordingly, like there just needs to be a shift in terms of their zones like, and, mm-hmm. heart rate zones and whatnot yeah. too. If there's not, if there's not an adjustment to that, then it's like inappropriate. And I think it can cause, you know, a, a lot of frustration too. I think athletes too, if they don't feel like they're meeting markers in their workouts that coaches give and they get really discouraged and it can be like confidence eroding. And as a coach, try and construct training. That's like confidence building. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and I think the RPE rate of perceived exertion, it helps athletes tune into different gears. And a lot of athletes too, they know like one gear and it's like to hammer. Right. Mm -hmm. And even like professional athletes of all types, like even I say runners, there's all kinds of different gears in terms of their running with tempo pace, recovery pace, you know, and I think there's high value to develop, you know, all those nuanced gears from an intensity standpoint. Mm -hmm. Is there some, some kind of way that you help people reduce that number in their head to, I mean, if they're not really good at looking at their rate of perceived exertion, the RPE. Sure. Well, I I think you can kind of talk about it in terms of like, you know, of RPE of, of five is pretty, you know, you're, you're working, but you can kind of carry, carry conversation with a friend and, and pretty easily, you know, and, and as you get up to maybe a, you know, a six or seven, you might have to like stop a couple times, you know, in the middle of a sentence to catch your breath. And, and so it's kind of giving them cues with their body. Also, how do you guys as, as dietitians kind of disrupt that perseveration, even with like the calories, right? Like they don't see an apple, they see hundred calories. Like what, what, what strategy do you use to kind of disrupt that process? That's so reflexive. I go back to best favorite word, their interoceptive awareness. <laughs> Like when they have those foods, how do they feel? Does it impact their hunger for the next meal? Are they able to concentrate on what they're doing? So if they're geared around the calories, they might miss the mark, especially if they're going out, let's say for a nice big training, they're like, gosh, you know, it felt great. I didn't hit my first wall until 90 minutes in because I had such a great breakfast. Woo. It was 300 calories more than I'm used to, but that helps them start to move into that worked for me for what I'm getting ready to do and holding yourself by a calorie level from the red standpoint, boy, that's a tricky thing because if you miss the mark with the calorie deficit that doesn't give you enough energy availability, then we start seeing negative consequences physically and psychologically. So that's where I said, listen to that body and what it needs, because you can't go off calories in equals calories out. We know that's hogwash. But I can see the athlete mind. I can see the eating disorder mind saying, well, I'm just a wimp. I mean, I'm at a seven and everyone else is at a three. So I just, I, 
is it can be hard not to push. Completely. And I think that's where the trust comes in with your, 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 you know, periodized training, ideally your, your body's going to adapt most effectively. Like when there are easier workouts and you're pulled back. Right. And I, and I think that that creates a lot of like trust, trust in the science that's out there, trust in the training plan trust in your body's response. And I think when there's a distrust of goal weight of meal plan of training plan, you're going to operate from a place sometimes of, of fear. Right. And I think that's where we start to see things go, go sideways. Yeah. Do you guys get a lot of patients who are there like post injury? So the injury and having to sit out kind of prompted them to (laughs) want to engage in behaviors. I'm assuming. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So that's a common one to see then. Yeah. I mean, I think we see kind of uh, sometimes when injuries, I mean, I, we, Beck and I kind of conceptualize eating disorder as an injury. It's like a metabolic injury. And we kind of talk about it in that language, athletes get injuries, physical injuries. I think just like a physical injury, kind of re-entry back into sport prematurely or too aggressively really increases risk of re-injury. So we use that language quite a bit. You know, the body, the human body and brain are so incredibly resilient. I'm just struck by this each and every day at people we see that are still able to function at pretty high levels, academically, professionally, vocationally, athletically. But I do think sometimes body does break down or will break down at some point. Like it's not immediate, can be a a season it's resilient, but usually sometimes when injuries do pop up, I do think it, it may be more, I don't know, it's more conducive for, for an athlete to get the, the care specifically to address their eating disorder, maybe, maybe then otherwise, I don't know if that's your take Becca or what. Well, and honestly, I feel like the number one thing that pushes them to finally go get help is because when they're injured, they're not able to be as active and their anxiety goes through the roof. Sure. And you talked about metabolic injury too, which is unseen. It's mm-hmm. not something you're going to get an x-ray and say, so it feels more wimpy, I guess. And Very hard. Yeah. And I think that that can be a powerful thing just in terms of healing your metabolic functioning. And I think that is, a, I had two conversations yesterday with high level athletes that I'm working with that like they have actually gained, gained weight in the process of like prolonged restriction. And it like is, it doesn't, it's hard to wrap their mind around that piece, but, but I think I'm, I'm providing care with Dr. Gaudiani on one of them. And she does see such beautiful language around this too, but like also kind of really talked about kind of the metabolic injury and we're trying to heal that. And it's counterintuitive to how to heal that, but nourishing yourself will kind of kick that uh, metabolic functioning in high gear. And I have always thought of like the hallmark of fitness for me is a really high metabolic, you know, resting metabolic rate. Like for me, that's like the pinnacle of fitness. And when you think about like not meeting energy needs or restriction, it actually like kind of slows that down. So, yeah. 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 We're, so the two of you are doing a workshop. There's some things happening in your worlds. So I want, I want our listeners, if they are piqued by what you, what you, your experience, both of you on this call, your huge amount of experience. What are you doing right now? Where can they find you? Go ahead, Becca. (laughs) Well, so first of all, we will be at Arizona State on Saturday, May 14th, doing a workshop there. And then the following day, there's one at CPSDA, but that one excitingly is sold out. We were 
astounded that it was, we weren't astounded because we knew that there was a desire for this. It sold out in minutes. So then that prompted us to have a third one on June 10th. And we're just uber excited because we've seen, I know as a supervisor for dietitians, I've had more and more collegiate dietitians reaching out others in private practice that are like, I want to be able to navigate this more effectively. I want to learn more about how these worlds, because sometimes you have to understand how the university is staged, like who's calling the shots, who's the medical director, what kind of staff do they have? It's, it's unfair to ask, you know, if they have a staff of three dietitians that are covering 500 athletes to be able to get the care that an athlete with an eating disorder deserves, they may have to triage that out. So these are things that we're going to cover just a little snippet there in the workshop. How long is the workshop? Oh, sorry, Riley. Oh, no, I was just going to add that the the Arizona state workshop, I think is five hours and Um, yeah, five hours. So, so we're offering CEs for these as well. The June 10th is a virtual workshop and, and that I think we're offering four CEs as well. And I think one of the things with Becca and myself, we feel tremendously passionate in working with athletes in this space, but also really privileged. And for, for both of us, I think we feel a tremendous duty to try to kind of communicate, convey. We, we don't, I, I can speak for myself. I know very little in this world, but the, uh, uh, totally, but, but I think in this space, we've had the luxury of having some unique experiences and kind of dropping into athletic departments and schools, many, and, and kind of seeing some of the challenges that just providers are, are up against and even in outpatient practice too. And so we feel uh, excited to try to learn from others, of course, but, but provide a platform where others can hopefully take some, some things away also and pick up some C's along the way, maybe. Mm, I'd be so great. I mean, I remember talking to a couple of universities. Oh, we don't see eating disorders here. I'm like, okay, you're not asking the right questions. You must be blind. <laughs> you, yeah. And we see them everywhere, no matter what professional discipline you're, you are listening. If you're listening, well, if you're listening, you're hearing this. No matter what professional <laughs> discipline you're in, you're going to be seeing eating disorders and definitely disordered eating. And so having the psychology, if, if we could have Dr. Nichols in our pocket and Rebecca McConville in our pocket, you can learn from them through these avenues. So we'll make sure those are in the show notes, right? And you kind of can have us in your pocket because another thing that we've done before is when they don't necessarily want to send their athlete out, they may actually do like a specialty consultation where then you can provide feedback and guidance for that outpatient dietitian or dietitian that might be in that university setting. So there's, I think that's another thing. There's a multitude of different ways that we can offer support in that sport and athletic realm that doesn't necessarily mean like hiring them into the staff. Yep. And, and that can be looking at, uh, you know, current protocols, eating disorder protocols within an athletic department or sitting on eating disorder treatment team virtually from afar in person. So we're, we're I'm excited and available to kind of just fit, fit needs of whatever that might be in whatever space, you know, exists. So, 
And, you know, there's one that using the reds, which you mentioned that Rebecca, Becca is the relative energy deficiency in sport. That can be an entryway for people to not have to use the term eating disorder. It's performance, strength, power. You've got to get your energy levels up and it may or may not be a full-blown eating disorder. Sometimes it, it doesn't require the treatment. It can just be like, you've got to fuel you're, you know, you've got a fuel. Most definitely. Becca, can you maybe speak to that about how like kind of the the reds kind of language and talking about that? And then, you know, that's captures more, you know, athletes, would you say in general, and then, and then kind of how you work and and finesse that to suss out more eating. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, when you're looking at reds and kind of the larger student athlete body, you have to start doing more preventative education up front because the screening tools more than likely aren't going to catch them, but it opens up the door for like, Oh, I can get a bone stress injury or a stress fracture by not eating enough or, Oh, the reason I might have lost my cycle is because I'm unintentionally under fueling. I forgot that when I shifted from high school to college, I started running 20 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour. That's fast. That's, fast. <laughs> That's quite a math. 20, 20 miles a week more. I should have probably eaten more. And what comes to the surface though, is if it's unintentional, they're going to do whatever. So uh, like Dr. Kate Bennett always has like the driven athlete and the disordered athlete. And the person that's had that undiagnosed eating disorder, they struggle big time. And I think that's where then having that mental health clinician, sports psychologist descend to like, gosh, when I asked them to start eating a little bit more carb at breakfast, they were going to throw something at me. I think this is just a little bit more than underfueling, And so it helps that we got them in the door, got them started, but now we can get them the next level of help that they need and deserve. Is that what you meant, Riley? Did I answer that? Exactly. You said it far okay. better than I could. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so where, where could people reach you guys and find all of this great information? Well, you all know where to find me, Riley. You got to share where they can find you. <laughs> mind, body, endurance. So three words, mind, body, endurance.com. So comprised of obviously my myself, but then other mental health providers kind of specializing in, in treating athletes for performance, sport performance issues, more clinical issues, and of course, kind of eating concerns as well. And then most recently, right, Becca, is it okay? Spoiler alert. Yeah. 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 Okay. Most recently, absolutely overjoyed to have Becca on board as well. And she's going to be our sport nutrition kind of director, kind of overseeing that piece and wing of kind of mind, body endurance too. So the hope is to kind of have other really passionate, skilled, qualified dietitians such as Becca to um, come on board too, to kind of collaborate and kind of multidisciplinary approach kind of in, in-house somewhat. Yeah. But to have all- that, that peer console excited. Awesome. That's amazing. Congrats, Becca. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm not going anywhere from Beth, but, but <laughs> I will be the virtual director to help yeah. just kind of nurture and be able to have that collaborative group with sports dietitians that do want to have that intersection with eating disorder. So we're yeah. really excited then to have that collaborative group that he already has there. So if Ron and Roberta were the godparents, then you two are the parents. <laughs> you are the well now wait a minute let's, we got to come up with something <laughs> it's a little more fun than that 
Yeah. Aunt and uncle or whatever. Yeah. The, the crazy uncle. Yeah. The crazy uncle. And the... <laughs> can I, can I at least be like an OG or something? Like... <laughs> so Riley, a wrap up question we have for you then, if you were to take yourself back into entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Oh boy. That's such a good question. Wow. I think like a lot of things in life, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and, and I think the more that I found out about this field, the more I realized how much I don't know. And so I think I would have told myself, just be patient, be a sponge. And I've learned most from other providers. Like, and I learned just the, such a wealth of information, just talking about style, philosophy, like approaches. And I think for me, that's been so energizing. And so I think I would have told myself like, hang in there. Cause I think I kind of had a vision, but it actually was very short-sighted in terms of what is possible. And then I think like teaming up with like Becca and other providers, it just really has energized me. So I think, yeah, I, I think I would have told myself to buckle up because it has been a fun ride and then to keep, keep learning and kind of keep trying to share and disseminate information. And most importantly, to keep kind of trying to help athletes and support athletic departments and sport providers and eating disorder professionals too. So, yeah, don't be too hard on yourself. Be a sponge, be patient because there's, I've been in the field 30 years now and there's so much I don't know. Right. And that's the whole idea of this podcast is to bring in all different areas of specialty and connect people with the resources for their areas, for their clients, patients, athletes. Beth, I have to call you out on something on your own podcast. Would you give yourself credit for the amazing clinician that you are? (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. I do like my work. I love my work. I do. And I just, but you've seen me Becca, because we have, and and that's one thing Becca and I, our standards are, are up there and we do require that we have our peer consults and we, we bounce ideas off of each other because even, even if you say that I'm a good clinician and I, I most 90% of the time I leave my time with my client and I feel really great about where we're going. There's those other times it's like, Oh, I've got to, I know nothing. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the last thing I'll say is I would have told, I think I would tell myself to, Keep a, keep a sense of humor. And I, I think that the work we do yes. is really, really hard and heavy. And I think I've, I think I've found providers who have longevity in the field really kind of are able to appropriately be serious, of course, and kind of meet their clients where they're at, but, but also there needs to be some, some joy in it and some humor or else it's just really tough. And, heavy. you know, yeah. I love that. I, so I couldn't have been in the field this long without, <laughs> without some of that and yeah. definitely the people. Now that I've got Becca with me, yeah, definitely. We had peer counsel over the dinner the table and yeah. kitchen. Yeah, that is right. <laughs> Get any better. <laughs> All right, thank you both for joining us. Thanks, thanks Beth. Thanks, Abby. Yes, thanks, Abby. Thanks, Beth. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other, so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content please find me at bethherald.com slash professionals.